0: Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Our topic today is a recession delayed and a bull market continued. Today's guest is Jeff Schultze, head of economic and market strategy at ClearBridge Investments, and the architect of the firm's widely followed anatomy of a recession program with its 12 indicator recession risk dashboard, which is signaling red for recession right now, and has been since September of 2022 but still no recession. Jeff, welcome back to WealthTrack. Why are nine of your 12 economic indicators red, yet third quarter GDP grew at a stunning 4.9% clip?
1: When we went red last September, uh, we had always felt from a timing perspective that this was going to be a long time before a recession materialized, similar to what we saw ahead of 1990s downturn, where that red signal came over a year ahead of time. but we certainly are surprised at the strength of the economy with that 4.9% real GDP growth print. To put that number in perspective, it was the fifth strongest quarter of GDP growth that you've seen in the 21st century if you strip out 2020 and 2021 when you had those pandemic induced recoveries. But more importantly, just because GDP growth is strong today really doesn't tell us anything about what to expect in the first half of next year. Because when a recession contagion takes over, the economy can turn really quickly so if you look at the last eight recessions going back to the late 1960s three quarters prior to the start of that recession real gdp growth was 4.6 percent which is pretty close to what we saw in q3 then two quarters out that drops to a still healthy three and a half percent level and then one quarter prior you see a sharp deceleration of economic activity where the economy barely grows at 08 percent and This reminds me of the Ernest Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises, when the main character, Mike Campbell, was famously asked, how do you go bankrupt? And he said two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And the same thing tends to happen as recession contagion takes hold. So, yes, the economy is holding up today. But as we turn the page to next year, we see a a step down in economic activity and a a high recession risk.
0: And and why? Tell me what you think is going to happen and what are the signals that you're seeing now? that you think represent a uh, heightened recession risk?
1: I think it's going to happen for a number of different reasons. First off, if you look at the leading economic indicator index or LEIs. They've been down for 18 consecutive months. Usually when you have four consecutive declines, you're in that recessionary danger zone. So we're more than four times past that threshold. And quite frankly, you've never seen a divergence between the LEIs and the economy to this magnitude without a recession materializing. So. We think because of this, you're likely going to see a step down in economic activity, but also a key support for last quarter's GDP print was the consumer. If you look at consumption, um, it came in at a very healthy 4% level, but we continue to see signs of balance sheet fatigue for the consumer. Uh, First and foremost, um, the excess savings hoard was revised up at the end of September. Um, So now there's about a half a trillion more of excess savings, and I think that's helped Third quarter spending, I think it'll help fourth quarter spending. But as we move into next year, I think it's going to become increasingly obvious that a lot of that excess money lies in the hands of upper income households that are going to view that savings as wealth rather than extra spending power. So that key support I don't think is going to be there. Also, when you look at the savings rate right now, it's at 3.4%, which is historically really low. Prior to the pandemic, it averaged over 6%. And I see a weakening labor market, and when the labor market weakens, you start to see precautionary savings, and I think that's going to be the case this time around. But the one thing that has me the most concerned is that if you look at delinquency rates, they're moving higher, whether you're looking at credit card delinquencies, auto delinquencies, other credit, even mortgage delinquencies are moving higher with this housing market. And when delinquencies move up in tandem with one another, it usually ends up being a recessionary environment. And this comes with a a really strong labor market. So if that continues to cool, which is our expectation, that key support, the consumer, I just don't see being there uh, over the next three quarters.
0: What are you forecasting for next year? Well, our base case is a recession.
1: Um, We think if we can get to the middle part of next year, um, that we could embrace the the soft landing narrative a little bit more aggressively. But the, the reason why we think you're gonna see a step down of economic activity next year is because a lot of people underestimate when the Fed headwind really came in to start to slow the economy. So to tell whether or not the Fed is actively helping or hurting the economy, um, you need to look at the Fed funds rate and compare it to inflation and the neutral rate, which is around 50 basis points, the hypothetical interest rate where the Fed's no longer helping or hurting the economy.
0: That's half a percentage point.
1: So when the Fed funds rate is below inflation and the neutral rate, the Fed is accommodative. And when it's above, The Fed is restrictive, and they're slowing the economy. And we like to lose the one-year inflation swap as our measure of inflation because businesses and consumers make decisions based on what they think prices are going to be, not necessarily what they've been. And when you look at it through this measure, the Fed only got to restrictive territory at the end of 2022 because they had such a big hole that they had to dig themselves out of. So again, the Fed's only been actively slowing the economy for around 11 months. Unfortunately, from the Fed standpoint, though, there's been somebody tugging on the rope that's been negating that restrictive policy, which is Congress. You've seen a huge increase of the fiscal right. deficit between the summer of last year to the summer of this year of a close to 5% of GDP.
0: Let's talk about the market and the stock market specifically and the economy's effect on the stock market or the economy's lack of effect on the stock market. Clearbridge's long-term view is that we are in a secular bull market that started in March of 2009 in the midst of the global financial crisis. Can you explain that to us? So if you look at
1: the S&P 500, uh, traditionally it goes through a you know 10 to 15 year period where it goes nowhere. That's known as a secular bear market. But they're always followed by a 20 year period where you have substantial upside in equities, better known as a secular bull market. And this dynamic is going going on all the way back to the 1930s and it's been our view really since the march bottom in 09 that this has been the start of a secular bull market that's likely going to run through to the end of the decade and the key with these secular bull markets is the drawdowns when you have bear markets are much less severe for example in your average secular bull market the drawdown is 26 percent your average drawdown in a secular bear market those periods where the market goes nowhere is 46 percent so even if we have a recession consuelo i think it's going to be a relatively mild sell-off similar to what we saw in 1990 maybe from peak to trough we lose 20 percent but i just don't see those excesses to really drive it to that post-world war ii average recessionary sell-off of 30 percent or something meaningfully deeper than a a bear market
0: the macro Backdrop uh, that can explain the market strength from Clearbridge's point of view, but specifically for investors, I mean, I'm just looking at an incredible performance of you know the mega cap tech stocks, you know the Magnificent Seven, and how they have absolutely dominated market performance. And what are you telling clients about the performance of the Magnificent Seven, and and how they should participate in it? Well.
1: And because of the outperformance of the Magnificent Seven, um, you've seen an interesting dynamic take place. Um, If you compare the S&P 500 equally weighted version compared to its cap-weighted index, um, the cap-weighted index is outperforming by its biggest margin since the late 1990s, 1998 to be exact. And that was a similar dynamic where you had strong market concentration and pronounced mega cap outperformance. But importantly, after 1998 and 1999, you had a reversion to the mean, and the equally weighted version outperformed for the next seven years. And you saw a reversion to the mean, where leaders became laggards, and it was a tremendous environment for active managers.
0: Are you comparing, Jeff, the dot-com bubble to what's going on with these, the Nvidias and the Apples and the Microsofts of the world? Is that well, an apt comparison? I don't, don't comparison? think that
1: the we're bubble territory like we saw back in 2000s. For example, if you look at the technology sector compared to March 2000, the peak of that bubble, um, the technology sector is 50% more profitable today and valuations on a forward-looking basis are about half the levels of what you saw. So we're a far cry away from the dot-com bubble. But usually when you see this concentration and this herding into a small number of companies. Generally speaking, it's good for active managers that are able to sidestep some of these stories because there's a lot of optimism that are priced into them. And if you look back to 2000, right, everybody knew that Cisco was going to be a winner of the tech bubble, and that was dead money for 10 to 15 years, as was Microsoft. And I I think when we look back at this AI and this evolving technology, um, some of the Magnificent Seven are gonna be winners, but there's gonna be others that aren't going to be winners, and I think active managers are going to be able to navigate that environment much better than being in a passive index strategy.
0: When will value outperform growth again, Um, if ever? I
1: think cycles change, um, and and I think growth may continue to have the leadership baton as we go through this potential recession, should it materialize, because you usually see that dynamic. However. When you get to the other side of this recession, I'm advocating investors, if they have an overweight growth position, to make it more of an equal weight to value because of the secular bull market that we talked about earlier. I think the catalyst for the last leg of this secular bull market is not going to be the growth stocks. Again, there's going to be winners there. But I think the biggest reason to be optimistic on the secular bull is that what I think AI can do is really help the old economy, the laggards over the last 12 to 13 years. Companies that have thin profit margins, high employee counts. And what AI can do is bring down that headcount level. So again, boost their profit margins and earnings. But also I think it closes the productivity gap between a junior and senior and level employee. Again, boosting profit margins and earnings, which will ultimately be a nice tailwind to those stocks. And I think on top of that, I think we're going to be in a higher interest rate and inflationary regime than what we've witnessed in the post GFC era. Um, That tends to supercharge the earnings potential of value companies versus growth, because growth, if it's not scarce, growth companies get less of a premium. So I think there's a lot of reasons as we move through this potential recession, looking out on the other side to be more optimistic on on the value complex.
0: So help us out as we go through this the shift in the economy and in the markets as well so what are you watching for a directional shift in the economy is there one indicator
1: it's hard to boil down to one but i will say it comes back to the labor market our canary in the coal mine Uh for the economy on the dashboard is initial jobless claims usually when it turns red it coincides with the start of a recession so it's usually that last domino to fall um, right now, it's in yellow territory, but if you look at initial jobless claims, they've been rising over the course of the last couple of weeks. Not alarming yet, but if we start to get initial jobless claims in the 260000 per week range, that's going to be a, a concern to us in confirmation that we are already in that recession, but we're not there quite yet.
0: And is there a canary in the coal mine for the stock market? Well, I would market? say it comes
1: back to market breadth. One thing that has us concerned about durable upside for this particular bull market uh, is the fact that you haven't had a lot of participation. Now, usually when you have a a new bull market start, a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, That means a lot of participation in the number of companies in an index. And for example, in the first year following a a bear market low going back to the 50s, usually um, the number of companies above their 200 day moving average is 85 or 95 percent. Really broad participation. This time around, in the year following last October's lows, number of companies participating in above that 200-day moving average at its peak got to 75%. So that's really the lowest that we've seen since 1957. So really what I'm looking for, for durable move higher in the markets, is more participation, right, outside of that magnificent seven. I want to see participation in small-cap companies and mid-caps. The Russell 2000 was below its October lows, just a couple of weeks ago, right? So yes, the S&P 500 is doing well, but that's not the case in other indices. So for me to get a little bit more optimistic of a follow through in materially higher markets, you need to see a broadening out of that participation.
0: And Jeff, at the end of every WealthTrack interview, we always ask our guests for the one investment recommendation for a long-term diversified portfolio.
1: Large cap value. Again, it's cheap on a relative basis to growth. I do think that growth can outperform in the near term. But given that I think we're going to be dealing with a different economy, a different interest rate and inflation environment than what we've seen over the last 15 years, I think value um, is really good for those that have a longer term perspective.
0: Is there an index that represents large cap value?
1: Yeah, the Russell 1000 value uh, index would be a, the, the benchmark for uh, large cap value.
0: And, and I have one last question for you. Given the fact that you're expecting the economy to slow pretty dramatically in 2024, even though it might skirt a recession, why don't you sound more <laughs> nervous? Well, <laughs> I, I
1: just don't see a lot of structural excesses in the economy. Right. The, the consumer, although I think that there's balance sheet fatigue in a very different place today than we were back in going into the global financial crisis, I think as a percent of GDP uh, consumer debt was around 100 percent going into the global financial crisis. And I haven't looked here recently, but I think it's around 73 percent today. Um, so the consumer's in a lot better shape. Yes, we may see some spending drawdowns and less spending than what we've seen. But I think the consumer's in really good shape. I think the banking system's in really good shape. And ultimately, I think that the Fed will be able to pivot a little bit more nimbly and to create a, a shallower drawdown when all things are considered. At bottom line, Consuela, the, the economy's just in a much better position than what we've seen over the last number of recessions.
0: Jeff Schultz, thank you so much for joining us again on WealthTrack. For previous interviews with Jeff Schultz, go to WealthTrack.com and please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.